0: Good morning. Today we are continuing our uh, Promises of God series. So this is a series that we started uh, several weeks ago. We've already gone through four. I think we've done Abraham, we've done Noah, and Gideon, and Joshua. And it's a series where we're kind of bouncing around in the Old Testament and taking a look at different promises that God has made to his people over that time. And it's a great... Um, sermon series for now, I think, for the time that we live in, because as our lives have changed in some sort of dramatic ways, uh, in some unprecedented ways, as we're dealing with a lot of big questions and uncertainty, and and uh, and and working through these these big big changes that all of us have been forced to go through in one way or another, um, this instability, it is good to be able to look to scripture and to see a God who is stable, who keeps his promises, and to recognize that even though thousands of years separate us from the people uh, who are being spoken to by God in those times, God doesn't change, and uh, those promises hold true, uh, even for us today. And so taking a look at what God said then, what it meant then, and how that applies to our lives now, what that character of God uh, shows us about how he uh, works with us and interacts with us even in these times. Maybe especially in these times. That's been a very, very cool exercise. And when Darren and I sat down to talk about this Promises of God series, um, Jeremiah is one of the first people that jumped into my mind. This this specific verse that we're going to be looking at today, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, sort of immediately came uh, into my mind as as a promise that we um, could get into. But, of course, it's taken us a few weeks to get here. Uh, And one of the reasons is that I was a little bit nervous, actually, about getting into it. Uh, When all was said and done, I was a little bit unsure about how exactly um, to approach this or to tackle it. Because I recognize that this is a special verse for many people. Um, It's a verse that comes up so often in terms of a life verse or a core verse in in, in the way that we understand God and his plans for us. It's a verse that gets uh, given out... um, at graduations, and at baptisms, and at uh, baby dedications, and even at weddings. Uh, It's a verse that people tattoo on themselves. It's a verse that really has become hugely, hugely significant for so many people, and it's used in these celebratory situations because it speaks of a God uh, who wants good things for us, and it's an exciting thing to kind of recognize um, that God does want good things for us. But... As soon as a verse carries that much meaning or significance to people, then then speaking about it uh, in an extended way like this uh, runs the risk of ruffling feathers or um, or or stepping on toes. Because what's also true about this verse is that it is one of probably the most misinterpreted um, or misunderstood or or misused verses in Scripture. Um, It's it's a tough verse to get into for that reason. But here's my promise to you: is that if through the course of this sermon you're introduced to a new way of thinking about Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, that if what I'm presenting here um, is is new for you in terms of how you think about this verse, then my goal is that as we dig into Jeremiah, as we try and faithfully uh, work through what we believe God was saying through Jeremiah to the Israelites in that time and what it means for us today, you will. By the end of this, if it's changed, it will have changed for the better. It will have changed to a verse that, if anything, contains more hope for you, contains more joy, contains more uh, promise. That The the promises that we find in this verse have gotten bigger. Um, And so I pray that we can uh, walk through this faithfully uh, together. And before we dig in, what I'd like to do is open up in prayer. God, as we explore your word, as we specifically today look at um, what you said through your prophet, Jeremiah, um, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you are saying to us today through these things, that we will be able to honestly approach truth, that we will seek your face and your voice above all else, um, and that we will be open to the steps Um, you want us to take in being drawn closer to you, closer to what it means to live for you in this life, that we will truly understand what it is that you have called us to, and that we will accept that calling with joy. Uh, In your name, amen. So, it's a wonderful and beautiful and good verse, but when it is used incorrectly, when it is taught incorrectly, what happens is, is that this verse can start to say things that it was never uh, intended to say. When it's divorced from or when it's taken from its context, it sounds like something much different than Jeremiah would have ever intended it to say. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Those words, that statement has become the basis or the cornerstone verse or one of the cornerstone verses at least for some of the most poisonous teaching in North America Christianity today. People in some of the biggest churches around the world take this verse and say if you believe enough, if you give enough, if you trust enough, then the sign of that according to this verse is that God's hand of prosperity is going to be on you. You're going to have Health and you're going to have wealth. Your problems are going to go away, your bank account's going to swell, your issues are going to go away, you'll be healed in all sorts of different ways. If you believe in God, everything's going to be great all the time. Uh, and the reverse of that is also uh, very dangerous. This idea that if you are in trouble, if things aren't going your way, if you're sick uh, or if you're poor or if you're unlucky, then somehow what that means is you're clearly not doing enough. You're not doing the right things. You're not doing them in the right order. You're not giving enough. And so then what happens is is that God is now punishing you uh, for your lack of faith. Uh, But generally, as long as you have faith, well, let me put it this way. There's a movie that came out uh, maybe five, six years ago. I'm thinking anybody in our church who has kids under the age of 12 has probably seen this movie. Uh, seen it multiple times, I imagine. Um, if if your kids are anything uh, like our boys or uh, or my nieces or nephews, um, and it is called the Lego Movie, and in this movie uh, there is kind of this blindly optimistic character um, who loves this song. This song is featured throughout the entire uh, movie. Emmett is his name, and uh, and it loves this song and it's played and played and played and played and played again Um, and it's called Everything Is Awesome and I am going to leave the singing to Darren and instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a clip. So this is a clip from the Lego movie kind of highlighting this song. Step 13, enjoy popular music. Chop the charts again, it's Everything Is Awesome. Oh my gosh, I love this song. Everything is awesome. Turn signal, park between the lines, yes! Drop off dry cleaning before noon, read the headlines, don't forget to smile, always root for the local sports team. Oh, sports team! Always return a compliment. Hey, you look nice. So, so do you. you. Drink overpriced coffee. Here you go, that's $37. Wow. Awesome! Yeah. I can sing this song for hours! Everything. Part of a team! Alright. Everything is awesome. Uh, and and those of you who have uh, children in the house may have them bouncing off the wall singing a song now. Um, Sebastian sings it all the time. Uh, it's one of his favorite songs. But if we're not careful, um, this verse can become the everything is awesome verse. No matter what is happening, no matter what's happened, it's all a part of God's plan to prosper us. Uh, and that way... Um, Of thinking uh, gets really ugly when we experience real hardship, uh, when we experience real loss, when there's death or there's sickness or there's abuse. Most of us have walked through hard times, all of us have walked through hard times in one way or another and during those times it's not unusual to have well-meaning people show up and say, don't worry this is all a part of God's plan. It was God's plan for you to get cancer or to be abused or to uh, suffer that loss. This is all a part of God's plan to prosper you and to give you hope and a future and There is truth in that of course We, we believe that God has a plan for our lives. We believe that God is working. We believe that God is in control uh, And we're gonna get that into that later in the sermon But but the way that it is presented so often as this sort of blanket statement of it's not that bad This is actually a good thing that happened. God likes that this happened. Everything is awesome. Um, Has pushed countless people away from the church and worse than that push people away from God because how can you trust a God? How can you be in a relationship with a God who wanted those things to happen to you who is actively? Choosing for those things to happen who sketched out your life who planned it and said "Ah, perfect. This is uh, Where I'm going to give them cancer. That's part of my good plan for them This is where I set up that drunk driver. Here's where I introduce them to that abusive girlfriend or that a boyfriend Um, Here is where I let their child die. That's all part of my great and wonderful plan for their lives. That sort of callous optimism uh, has hurt many people. And as we get into this, I think we're going to very quickly see that it's not what Jeremiah intended and it's not what God intended. In fact, it's worth noting himself that if we uh, look at Jesus for a moment, who is uh, our best and our clearest picture of who God is of what the character of God is, um, the closest that we've been to God uh, in the Bible, um, Jesus weeps at Lazarus's death. He gets angry at injustice. He experiences stress, anxiety himself uh, when he's praying in the garden in uh, the night before he's killed. Um, never believe that verses like this are calling us to a life where we simply shrug off the negative, where where nothing should bother us anymore. God himself, we see, is troubled and bothered by the evil in the world, by death, by sin, by brokenness. And so that is not what this verse is calling us to, just sort of a blind optimism where nothing is allowed uh, to weigh us down or nothing is allowed to cause us to grieve. It's not who we are called to be. And actually, all you have to do to begin to get a much clearer picture of what this verse is talking about is to go one back, one verse back, uh, to get some context. Jeremiah twenty nine ten, which doesn't come up nearly as often. I doubt if anyone has Jeremiah twenty nine ten tattooed on them, or or hands out Jeremiah twenty nine ten as a graduation gift, um, or, or or says it as a wedding. Although it would be kind of funny if they did. But but this is essential for our understanding of of the next verse of what follows. Jeremiah twenty nine ten says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. 70 years here, most commentaries agree, is is a symbolic number. It's meant to represent the average lifespan of a person. So verse 10, the first half of this longer statement that verse 11 is kind of within, sets things up by saying, once everybody who receives this message has passed away, my plans for you, Israel, are going to kick into gear. I will fulfill my promises to you. Once all of you listening are done on this earth, once you have lived your entire lives under Babylonian rule, been buried in Babylonian soil, lived out, Your days as an exile forced away from your homes under foreign kings, once you have all passed, then my plans to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future are going to kick in. So what does that teach us about this verse? How does this affect our understanding of the verse? I've got three points that we're going to go through fairly quickly here. The first one is this. God's view of time is big, not small. So this is not about today or this week or this month or this year. Well, it is, but it's not just about today or this year. The plan Jeremiah is referring to is a much bigger plan. God is working something through and promising something and beginning something, the fruits of which will not be seen for another three generations. Those who are hearing this, their, their grandchildren will be grandfathers by the time that this is done and worked out darren has often spoken uh, over the years about the idea that we serve a bigger god a bigger than god and here we see god working with a big view of time um, it's also true point number two that god god's view of you is big and not small so one of the most common mistakes that we make uh, when reading the bible and i'm certainly as guilty of this as anyone is that we end up taking verses meant for us and we turn them into verses about me Um, and when jeremiah talks about the plans that god has for you he's not talking to an individual Uh, and in fact he's not talking to us here in our homes in 2020 he's talking to a group he's talking to these exiled people of israel stuck in babylon and now we believe that those words have power for us too. But it's just as important that what we recognize when we're seeing this is that it's not about me or you as an individual. It's about us. Uh, it's a big you. I had a Bible call professor that said, basically, whenever you see you in the Bible, just say y'all in your head. God's plans are for y'all. They're for all of us. And not just us, as in us walking here today, but the entire world. And not just the entire world as it is right now but for those who have come before us and for those who are coming after us god's plan is for a big us his plan is to prosper the biggest possible you this you that is used here is not a small one it's a big one and it helps us understand how god works better when we remember that it's not as much about me or about you as it is about you as it is about all of us So God's view of time is big. God's view of you is big. And third, God's view of prosperity is big, not small. We can often think of a verse like this uh, and ones like it and and begin to think immediately about our our sort of the issues or problems that are right in front of us. God has plans not to, to prosper us and not to harm us and to give us a hope and a future. And we start thinking about that test, that we need to pass or the bills that we need to pay or that Facebook contest we just entered for a vacation getaway. We think of the immediate. We think of now. But God says, in 70 short years, when your life is done, when you've lived here in Babylon for a time, when you've worked here, when you've existed here in this imperfect place with the hurt and pain and things not the way they're supposed to be, in a foreign kingdom under a foreign king, once those 70 years are up, once your life is done, I have a plan for you. I'm bringing you home. You have a hope and a future that are far more important than anything that happens to you here on earth. So often uh, when this verse is misinterpreted or misused, it's because we think too small. Small problems, small groups, small amounts of time. When televangelists use a verse like this to convince people That by giving money, you're saying the right things, you're doing the right things. They can magically become rich or healed. It's because they are taking a small view of what God is trying to do. What God is talking about in this verse. And we serve a big God with big plans for you. For y'all. We have a big hope and a future that dwarfs everything else in our lives. And we're called to focus in on that. Now, I always feel like I need to qualify things here. When we've only got 20 or 30 minutes to dig into something, we tend to focus in, I have to focus in on a specific angle of it. Uh, That doesn't mean that it's the only thing that's true. Um, God tends to be a both and God, a bigger than God, and so that involves a lot of different angles to think. So do we believe, or do I believe, or should you believe that God cares about the details and the small things in our lives? Of course we should. There are many verses that speak beautifully about how God is intimately acquainted with us. He knows us as individuals. He knows us deeply. He cares about things on a day-to-day and a moment-to-moment basis. In fact, we just spent several weeks in February meeting together as a group uh, in the credit union basement and and celebrating the ways in which God shows up in the ordinary small things in our lives. We've heard many, many stories about that. And do we believe or should or should you believe or should I believe that God loves to bless us here on earth? Absolutely. God loves to give good gifts. We believe that we have been blessed and continue to be blessed. We want to recognize those blessings in our lives. They aren't evil or wrong. Um, and we believe that they're from God. But looking at this verse in Jeremiah, which is so often used to talk about those things, we see here that that's not what Jeremiah is talking about. He's not talking about finding the perfect parking spot. And he's not talking about getting that promotion at work. Or even he's not talking about being healed from that disease. Um, And here's the hard pill to swallow for many of us. That leaves us, you and me, with a lifetime in Babylon. That leaves us with a lifetime here in this broken and messed up and imperfect and confusing uh, world. That leaves us in an enemy kingdom for the time being. God's plan is a big one, and that's important to keep in mind, but that doesn't mean that everything is awesome here and now, and that's tough. I have a hard time getting through a dentist appointment, even if I know it's going to be over in 20 minutes, and I know that it's good for me. How am I supposed to do 70 years uh, in Babylon? How am I supposed to live a life in this world where things don't always add up and don't make sense and where there is this hurt and this pain? because telling me it's small doesn't actually matter that much because it doesn't feel small. It feels like everything right now. It's good to know that the future is hell, but what am I supposed to do in this moment? How am I supposed to live? What now shall we do? I'm glad you asked because I feel very much the same. And second, because that's exactly what Jeremiah talks about. Uh, in the first part of this chapter and he has some really surprising things to say so i'm going to read through this quickly again this comes from the passage uh, that sheldon read it says this is what the lord almighty the god of israel says to all those i carried from exile into exile from jerusalem to babylon don't put down roots this is not your true home don't make attachments don't get too close to your pagan neighbors keep to yourself don't get comfortable remember this isn't where you belong If you're following along in your Bibles, which I hope you are, that is not what it says. What the Lord says to those he carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon is this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease in my name I have not sent them declares the Lord this is what the Lord says when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future so this would have been shocking to hear the Israelites are in a foreign land under a foreign king, and they are under captivity. What they will have been hoping for, what they will have been expecting, is stay strong. Stick to yourselves. Don't get complacent. You're in enemy territory. Your neighbors are evil. Do anything you can to undermine the authority of Babylon. Do what you have to to survive, and nothing more. Because God has plans to prosper you. You have a hope and a future. So separate yourselves. Don't get caught up in day-to-day life. Focus on the future. Instead... There are a few key points Jeremiah makes um, that we can apply, I think, as we live our lives out here in our own sort of Babylon, and this is uh, what we're going to get into uh, with the time that we have left. So first, build houses and settle down. One of the traps I think it can be easy to fall into as Christians is a feeling of restlessness or, or missed opportunities or not living up to potential or always looking to the next thing, trying to figure out what the next thing is for our lives. And there is a sense in which our hearts um, need to be ready to to move where God is calling us, that we that we need to do these things. But we, we get sort of over-focused on that, and we want to become not too committed to any one thing or to any one place, because what if there's something better out there uh, for me? And this can be spiritual, or it can be sort of practical uh, material as well. We think about this in terms of jobs and careers. We think about this in terms of boyfriends and girlfriends. Um, and all these sorts of things. What if there's something better? What if I'm missing out on what I'm really truly being called to? I can't get too comfortable because what if I'm being called somewhere else? Besides, uh, you know, as the song says, this, this this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And there is truth to that. Uh, 1 Peter reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles. Uh, Paul says in Philippians that our true citizenship is in heaven. And in Hebrews, we're reminded to be oriented towards the city that is to come. Um, We must never forget that. But here we see God agreeing with that saying. It's not in the Bible anywhere, but it's a good one. Uh, Bloom where you're planted. You're here. And maybe that's not where you wish you were. And maybe it's not where you feel you're meant to be. And maybe it's not perfect. Of course, it isn't perfect. That's okay. Build houses and settle down and plant gardens and do ordinary things, here is where you are. So live here. Don't be afraid to put down roots and to make it feel like home. That's number one. Number two, seek the prosperity of your exiled home. So we're called to build houses and settle down, to bloom where we're planted. Uh, But this might even be more shocking and that's to seek the prosperity of Babylon, to pray for them. Um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's said again by God uh, later on in a very famous sermon preached on a mountain. The people of Babylon were considered to be pure evil by the Israelites. We, we think of the political divides that we see um, as extreme these days. The left versus the right or the Trudeau fans or haters or the Trump fans or haters. It, it feels pretty extreme, uh, but that hate going around... Um that that sort of poisonous talk uh, is is nothing compared to what we see here. The Babylonians inspired in, uh, one of the most horrific lines in the Bible uh, from Psalm 137 where the author uh, who is exiled in Babylon as an Israelite writes, "Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This was a fiery hatred, one that we can barely understand the depths of. And God says through Jeremiah, love your enemies. And so we see that living in a foreign land, uh, we're called not just to settle into, to begrudgingly accept that this is our home, but to actively seek uh, the welfare of those around us, maybe uh, even especially those who disagree with us, with those who we feel to be our enemies. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, That's the question I'm going to throw out in our Zoom uh, conversation today. What does it look like to actively seek the prosperity of Babylon in our current culture, in our current context? Third uh, statement that Jeremiah makes, third sort of takeaway from this passage is this. Don't listen to false prophets who promise easy answers. Jeremiah was known as, the uh, the weeping prophet as babylon was gearing up for attack the popular prophets of the day false prophets were, were telling people that god would secure victory for them that god would protect them uh, all the while jeremiah was warning that they were going to be overtaken and he was ignored and once they were captured and brought to babylon the false prophets pivoted to saying it would only be for a short time they would soon be going home and jeremiah spoke out against this as well calling the people not to listen to um The dreams that you are encouraging these prophets to have. They are telling you what you want to hear, Jeremiah says. And so the same is true for us. We must seek not only to listen to answers that feel good or right to us or the things that we want to hear, but to be intentional in our pursuit of truth. Whether those answers are easy or hard, pleasant or unpleasant, we must listen for God's voice above all others and be careful of simply turning towards those who promise an easy life or say what it is that we want uh, to hear. And when we do these things, we find something so much richer than either of the two alternatives. On the one hand, we can believe uh, or develop a system of living that says that because we follow God, we're going to be blessed. Materially, with health and wealth and comfort and an easy life, and then feel the hollowness of that uh, when difficulties inevitably come, when we walk through struggle. Uh, on the other hand, we find another extreme. We can say, fine, I admit it. I recognize I'm in Babylon. Uh, the struggle isn't going away anytime soon, and so I'm disengaging as much as I possibly can. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to detach myself. I'm not going to build relationship. I'm not going to settle down. I'm going to float above it all. I'm going to hate the world. And those who are different, I'm just going to wait on heaven. I'm just going to wait for Jesus. And I'm not going to engage with this mess around me. But God, as he so often does, presents a third way. And says, this is what I'm calling you to. Not to blind optimism and artificial happiness. Uh, Nor is he calling us to detachment and gloom. And sort of pulling ourselves away. But he's calling us to this, to engage with... And to wrestle with and to be neighbors with and to connect with babylon with this world that we find ourselves in to love it and to seek its prosperity and to recognize that for now this is your home this is where you live so live here really live but underneath it all never lose sight of the fact that i have got plans for you and they are good and they will prosper you and there is hope and there is a future hold on to those things and know uh, that I am working. And in the balance of this, we find great blessing, not only in looking towards the future, but also in living the way God calls us to here on earth. I want to close out the sermon with a, a story. Uh, many of you know, many of you walked through me in that journey of, of hurt um, when my brother took his life a few years ago. Um, probably less of you know that that was not the first brother that I've lost. Uh, in my lifetime. I was born a twin and I had a brother, his name was Lucas, uh, and he had a brain hemorrhage uh, shortly after birth that resulted in cerebral palsy. He passed away unexpectedly just before uh, we turned three, just before my third birthday. And my dad has talked a lot about Luke over the years and about the experience of, of that time in life and what that has taught him and how that has changed him. Um, and I asked him for permission to talk about that a little bit, to share his story. And actually, I asked him if he'd be willing to send it to me in his own words. So, this is what he sent to me. And I think it's a beautiful example of God's plans for us playing out um, even in the midst of the 70 years uh, that we spend here in Babylon. I vividly remember the day that Kim and I found out we were expecting twins. It was an unbelievably exciting moment. Whenever anyone would ask me if I was hoping for twin boys or twin girls, I would always respond the same way. I don't care, as long as they are healthy. Before the boys were born, I seldom thought about the alternative to healthy, but when I did think about it, I envisioned a sad hypothetical world filled with pain, emotional discomfort, and an ever-present feeling of loss. When Lucas and Jesse were born 10 weeks early, and I became the proud father of two healthy boys. We celebrated their arrival and the fact that everything was okay, even though they were so tiny. When we got the phone call from the hospital after two days with the news that Lucas had experienced a severe brain hemorrhage, I recall being galvanized by a single compelling fact. My son, who was incredibly vulnerable, was now facing the battle for his life and I would do whatever it took to be his dad. Over the weeks, months, and years that followed, it slowly became more and more clear what that would look like. In some ways, it was a kindness that we could not see the full picture on any given day. And so our life with Lucas became a journey of discovery to understand what could be and what could not be. What are some of the things I learned from being the father of Lucas? All accomplishments are worth celebrating. You communicate far more with your eyes and body language than you do with your words. If you love someone, you give them the power to cause you great pain. Love anyway. The alternative is far worse. But I think that the greatest truth that I learned from being Lucas' dad is a glimpse into how God sees me. He can look at me in my twistedness and brokenness, and my distortion of the perfection that he wanted for me. And without being blind to it, he simply sees me and loves me and holds me high in the air in front of everyone and says, this is my boy. And everything else kind of falls away. When Lucas died, we were stunned. It came without warning and he simply left one night. If someone had offered me the choice in advance to have a son with cerebral palsy who would consume our lives for three years and then die unexpectedly, I would never have taken that option. But now that I have lived it, I would never give it up. That's from my dad. When we follow Jesus, we are not guaranteed wealth or health or comfort or ease. In fact, Jesus calls us to count the cost, to pick up our crosses, to recognize that the choice will require sacrifice and pain. But on that journey, if our eyes are open to it, if our ears can hear it, we know that, like Paul says in Romans 8:28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those words are spoken by a man who was beaten, who spent time in jail, who wrestled with his health, and who was eventually executed for his faith. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Amen.